This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversation. In this special episode of the National Security Conversation, I have with me Ambassador Shyam Saran, the former Foreign Secretary of India. In his uh, excellent new book entitled How China Sees India and the World, Ambassador Saran offers a sweeping survey of China over 3,000 years of its history and evolution. He undertakes the mighty task of making China and its ties with India better known to all of us. He takes as on a rich intellectual journey through the Chinese mind and culture, political institutions and world visions, the book unpacks the central mores of Chinese political thinking and critical issues in India-China relations. Uh, Ambassador Saran, welcome to the National Security Con- Con- Conversations and congratulations on yet another fantastic book. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Ambassador Saran, your book is a terrific journey through the millennia of Chinese history, culture, and politics. What made a former diplomat write on what historians would normally write on? Well, this is not a history book. You know, uh, I would uh, like to make that very clear that uh, you know this is not a a, a scholarly treatise uh, on Chinese history. Uh, what I wanted to do was to present to a general reader. Uh, you know, uh, a certain certain kind of, uh, you know, familiarity with uh, Chinese history, its very rich uh, culture, uh, what are the ways in which historically India and China have, you know, uh, interacted with one another, how these have shaped the perceptions of the two countries regarding one another. So it's um, really tr- trying to, uh, you know, decode in a sense. Uh, what many people in India and perhaps elsewhere also uh, find, you know, China a big mystery, uh, an enigma, uh, very difficult to understand. Uh, so this is really an effort in that direction. And uh, as I said, it should not be regarded as a scholarly treatise uh, in any way. It's more for a very general kind of reader. Thank you, Abbas Saran. You know, one of the things that we keep hearing about the Chinese, uh, from including from the Chinese, is um, China being uh, the middle kingdom, as it were. How do we sort of unpack? I mean, having um, you know written what you have written, uh, an alumnus book at that. How do we unpack the whole Chinese obsession with uh, uh, its centrality as the middle kingdom? Yeah, so the centrality uh, derives uh, from a certain uh, Chinese view of its own uh, history. Uh, what I have pointed out is that uh, China's uh, view of the world has been, for example, very much influenced by the fact that uh, while there was a, a settled agricultural population in the river valleys of China, uh, there were you know rich urban centers which had developed due to the uh, you know promotion of uh, trade. Uh, China was always under constant assault uh, by very aggressive and even violent tribes on its periphery. You know, uh, the steppe tribes, essentially, uh, included uh, the Mongols, for example, in history, also included the Manchus uh, later on. 
both of which actually conquered the whole of China. <laughs> so the uh, constant uh, perennial kind of uh, uh, challenge for China was how to deal with this uh, constant threat uh, on its uh, borders. So it, there was a sense that here was a center of culture and civilization or very advanced culture and civilization uh, with concentric circles of less and less you know, civilized and cultured, you know, uh, populations along uh, its uh, borders. And that is how th that sense of, you know, being a kind of a civilizational center uh, or a middle kingdom complex uh, came into, into uh, being. Uh, so uh, much of this, much of this uh, then has uh, become a legacy of the past uh, for uh, China. And also, don't forget, I mean, that China was a very large country uh, and it was a very rich economy, uh, somewhat, uh, you know, self-sufficient self in a sense because of its very size. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, there was uh, a kind of a sense that others need China, others want to trade with China, but we don't really need the rest of the world. So these are the, these are the reasons that lie behind that uh, attitude. Does, do the Chinese still have that uh, complex about themselves? Um, what contemporary implications uh, does this Middle Kingdom complex have uh, for China's behavior towards the rest of the world today? Well, I mean, what it has done is, uh, and as I pointed out, that China's uh, concept of power is very hierarchical. Uh, I think that's an important, uh, you know, feature of uh, the way China treats uh, power. Uh, so it uh, looks upon, you know, the uh, countries around it as somehow belonging to some kind of a pecking order, some kind of a ranking order, uh, with China really at the top right. as the most, uh, you know, dominant uh, country. And it believes that this was really the case uh, also in the past. You recall a conversation that, uh, you know, the uh, former uh, Chinese foreign minister, Yang Chi, now he's, of course, state councillor. But uh, during a meeting with the ASEAN countries, I think it was in 2010, where uh, he reacted to some criticism about China's uh, moves in the South China Sea by saying, you know, uh, you are all very small countries and China is a big country. And that is just a fact, <laughs> you know. Uh, so it, it, this this reflects, in a sense, uh, that 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 sense of uh, you know dominance, a sense that you know others should defer uh, to us because we are a big power. Uh, so uh, this is uh, something which you do see in the uh, kind of arrogance of power, which uh, is very evident in much of the behavior that we see of. Uh, China, almost a sense that we have always been the dominant power in Asia. And what is happening today is nothing but China going back to its natural position <laughs> that it has always right. enjoyed in history. Uh, this is really, you know, the return of history in a sense. Right. You know, in that, in that broader context and, and talking about the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, you actually write in the book that this is something, BRI is something new and unprecedented. Uh, the road BRI is not a revival of some historical role of China as a great trading power. In fact, you argue that an imagined history is being put forward to seek legitimacy for 
China's claim to Asian hegemony. So this is this is an interesting argument that you're making. So in that context, Ambassador Saran, how can we understand, uh, what can we understand about the Chinese grand strategy from the BRI uh, perspective and the sort of careful uh, narrative building around that BRI project? Given the fact that you're saying that this is really not, uh, you know, it has not, so it, it is not really historically accurate. So two things. Uh, if we, for example, look at uh, the Silk Road, which is what China is harking back to. The Silk Road was actually a term which was coined by a German uh, geographer. Uh, uh -huh. But, you know, while uh, he used the word silk, it is not as if, you know, this particular road in history uh, was only for the trading of uh, Chinese silk. Uh, number one, in addition to Chinese silk, there were a large number of other commodities which were, you know, being exchanged back and forth over a network of roads, not just one road. There were a network of trading routes between right. China, including India, including the ancient Persia, going by sea over to the Mediterranean, to the old Roman Empire. Uh, so there was uh, a whole scheme, in a sense, of uh, trading, uh, trading routes. And China was really at one end of that network of it was not the central point of that uh, network. Right. Uh, for example, if you take uh, even silk, Chinese uh, silk would sometimes find its way to Indian ports through the Central Asian, uh, you know, uh, trading routes, uh, and then from the Indian ports, like Barigaza or Broch, as it is known, uh, would be then uh, transported to the, the Roman Empire. Uh, there were also Indian goods which were being exchanged. As you are aware, that Indian cotton textiles were greatly valued, uh, not just in, in, in the Mediterranean, but also in the whole of Southeast Asia. Uh, there were spices which were being uh, you know, exchanged. Uh, both spices which were grown in India, but also spices which came to Indian ports from Southeast Asia. So it is a much more complex history of trade uh, in which... China was a participant, but China was not the nodal point or not the central point, uh, as it were. Uh, even if you take the maritime trade, it is true that a considerable amount of trade, for example, would take place between the Chinese uh, ports on the Chinese eastern coast and ports in Southeast Asia, ports uh, uh, in India, the Malabar coast, for example, mm -hmm. or the Coromandel coast. There was a lot of trade taking place along these maritime uh, routes. But it was not as if China was the central point of those routes. Uh, in a sense, you can say that, you know, India was much more of a crossroads for both land routes as well as maritime routes. You know, and that is what gave India its very cosmopolitan kind of uh, culture. Because it was lying astride both maritime routes as well as, you know, the uh, Central Asian, uh, uh, you know, caravan routes. Uh, so uh, this is one aspect that right. the history itself is far more complicated and the history does not testify uh, to a centrality uh, to China uh, as it is being uh, argued today. Secondly, as I have said, the Belt and Road Initiative is a very ambitious exercise, you know. It is, it is uh -huh. not only uh, creating new highways, uh, railroads, digital highways, 
uh, across uh, Eurasia. Uh, it is also building up uh, ports, for example, in in South South Asia, in um, you know, in the Gulf, Africa as well as well. Uh, so this is uh, something which is really a new phase in Chinese history. China has not been as sort of externally engaged uh, in the past as it is uh, be, being engaged uh, today. Uh, so, yes, there is an effort on the part of China to suggest that, you know, this, this central role that China is seeking as far as the global economy is concerned is also somehow going back <laughs> to the past where it, China enjoyed that same kind of centrality. That aspect uh, is what I question. Right. You know, Ambassador Saran, uh, you said uh, the BRI project is a very ambitious project, uh, clearly so. But in retrospect, uh, do you think India probably should have uh, looked at uh, the uh, BRI project, um, you know, in a more conciliatory manner? We shouldn't have said completely no to it. Or, uh, or do you think we did the right thing by uh, saying no to the BRI uh, project, uh, no right from the start? So let me answer that uh, by pointing out two important uh, aspects. See, India did not, for example, have much reservation of uh, being part and parcel of another Chinese, you know, promoted project, save the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIIB. Uh, or you take the BRICS Development mm -hmm. Bank. You know, these are two very important multilateral, you know, initiatives. And fair to say that these were promoted by China. But why did India not have a problem with those institutions? Because they were truly multilateral institutions in the design of which, in the kind of working out the kind of procedures through which, say, lending would take place from those banks. What would be the performance criteria which would be followed? What would be the personnel uh, you know, criteria which would be followed. Uh, India was a very important participant in those consultations, which finally led to the right. setting up of the these institutions. And as you know, right. India is the second largest uh, shareholder in uh, both the banks and Indian is a vice president uh, of AIIB, it has been a president of the BRICS Development Bank. So it is not that we have had any kind of a problem with a Chinese uh, you know, initiated uh, project, as long as it gave us also an opportunity to participate as a as a as a partner. If you take the Belt and Road Initiative, what is the reason why we have had a reservation? Because unlike say AIIB, this particular project is a Chinese design project. It is a Chinese <laughs> initiative project. Nobody has asked us. Do we agree with the manner in which this particular project is being set up? You know, we have not had right. any kind of, you know, uh, input in terms of how this is going to be designed. So this is a Chinese-led, Chinese-initiated, Chinese-designed project. And essentially what we are being asked is you just sign on to it. And if we ask how will this operate, then say this is something to be worked out later, <laughs> which I don't right. think is a is a very good uh, way of you know trying to promote uh, a, a this kind of a, a project so it is not multilateral it is a chinese uh, project and it is a network of 
essentially bilateral kind of cooperation agreements between China and uh, various you know uh, partner uh, countries. It is not as if it is a multilateralized uh, kind of initiative. So this is, I think, uh, the uh, reservation that we had, and I think that reservation was uh, well. Right. Secondly, if you look at the actual record right. of the BRI, uh, in terms of you know the uh, patterns of financing which have. Uh, evaluation which has been followed, uh, some problems are arising now, isn't it? I mean, if you take, say, the uh, case of uh, Sri Lanka, uh, it's it, or even the Maldives, uh, there are there are difficulties uh, because of the fact that it has not done the kind of due diligence uh, which should have been. Hmm. Uh, before you know initiating this project even uh, pakistan you can find that uh, problems are arising uh, so on balance i would say that uh, the caution which india has displayed in terms of you know its uh, its uh, participation in the bri uh, i think that is is fairly uh, well founded and of course if there are projects which china you know undertakes for example in central asia or it undertakes in other parts of the uh, world, which are infrastructure projects. You know, I presume that these are not only exclusively for Chinese use. I presume that they, if there is a mutual interest, uh, yes, India and China can can work together on that. Right. Um... Ambassador Saran, um, in fact, you spoke about, um, earlier on, you spoke about India being at the center of uh, trade uh, and civilization rather than China being at the center of it. Uh, but, you know, how did China's perception of India go from an independent center of civilization, spirituality and knowledge to that of a slave nation under the British and a launch pad for the latter's de uh, depredations against China? Um, what, do you, what do you mean when you say that uh, India served as a teacher by negative example uh, to China. Yeah, so India was a teacher by positive example <laughs> in the earlier period, uh, because uh, despite uh, that uh, sense of centrality that ancient China may have uh, had, uh, there is no doubt that uh, the encounters with India, you know, during the first millennium, those encounters actually uh, created in China an image of an alternate center of culture and civilization. And perhaps a center of culture and civilization even more advanced than China. So the spread of Buddhism, for example, to uh, China, the fact that several Indian teachers and, uh, you know, uh, scholars uh, came to China in order to translate uh, Buddhist scriptures into Chinese, you are aware that several Chinese monks made the long journey to India very dangerous uh, through very dangerous terrain, uh, again to study at, uh, you know, advanced centers of learning like Nalanda University or the Vikramshila University. Uh, they studied under Indian masters and had a very, very positive uh, view, almost reverential view of what ancient India uh, was. And so India did not quite fit into the middle in middle kingdom kind of a complex at that point of time. Uh, that uh, right. you know here was some distance away, but here was an alternate center of culture and civilization. Uh, 
Now, hmm. this hmm. Uh, continued to be the case till the end of the first millennium. You know, the, these kind of contacts continued between India and China. Also, trade was taking place between India and China during this time as well. Uh, but as soon as you start entering the second millennium, after 1000 AD, for example, then two things have happened. One is that in India itself, Buddhism becomes a much weaker kind of a, uh, you know, religion. Uh, it's already in decay, even when the Chinese monks are visiting India. And by 1000 AD, you know, it has virtually disappeared uh, from, from India, even though it has flourished in many other parts uh, of Asia. Uh, secondly, this was also the time when the Muslim invasions began uh, in, in India. And this also acted to interrupt many of the established, you know, sort of routes of uh, trade and contact between China and India, and not just between India and China, but India and, you know, many other uh, countries. Uh, so you have a period after 1080 where India essentially drops off the radar screen, as it were, uh, as in, in Chinese eyes. And when does China, when does India then resurface in Chinese consciousness? It resurfaces precisely at a time when India is under British colonial. And right. that encounter, after this long gap of history, that encounter is a very unpleasant encounter. Why? Because the colonial power, Britain, in its depredations against China, say, for example, the opium wars, you know, who were the foot soldiers of the British imperialists or the colonists? It was the Indians. You know? right. Or take the concessions, for example, in Shanghai, who were the police forces? Well, they were Indians. A lot of, uh, you know, Sikh uh, policemen were uh, serving in the British concession. Uh, right. Also, the opium trade itself uh, also enriched a lot of Indians, not just mm -hmm. the British. So one of the things that came up uh, while I was researching for the book was how much Bombay's prosperity, Mumbai's prosperity was built originally on profits derived from uh, the opium trade because there were some... Uh, very uh, rich, you know, Parsi traders, Marbari traders, uh, who also made a, a lot of money from the uh, opium uh, trade. Right. So there was this kind of a negative sense about India that, you know, it has mm. from being such an alternate center of culture and civilization, it has now fallen to the role of a slave uh, nation. Right. Right. And right. that, uh, you know, it is it is like an instrument uh, of oppression being used by the British uh, imperialists uh, against uh, China. So this is the origin of that, uh, you know, that phrase which I have used of India right. being a teacher by negative example, that this is not what China should become. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is the message which comes uh, from the period where, uh, you know, the Qing Empire is coming to an end. Uh, and you see the stirrings of nationalism, you see the stirrings of, you know, Chinese resurgence taking place. Uh, and in that period, therefore, uh, who are the models? Even though China mm. has been defeated by Japan, but Japan is more of a model because it has shown how it can, 
you know, resist Western imperialism. How it has That's managed right. to use the knowledge and technology of the West to become a great power itself. Not India. No. Right. So, uh, yes, sorry. It is true that, sorry, it is true that uh, for some time, you know, the independence struggle which was taking place in India also against the British and you had the revolutionary struggle taking place in, in uh, China. Uh, that was also against uh, Western imperialism. Uh, there was a certain sense of mutual sympathy and mutual support. Uh, but hmm. they're rather superficial as it turned out. Right. Ambassador Saran, you know, in fact, uh, um, sticking to the Southeast Asian region, you actually write in the book that it is misleading to claim that the entire East and Southeast Asian region is somehow a part of a Chinese Confucian value, and that, uh, by contrast, Indian cultural influence spread over a much larger area, shaped political thought and institutions, religious beliefs, language and literature, and art and culture in general. Um, this, is, this is interesting because, you know, China seems to make a completely different argument. In fact, some scholars also seem to make this argument about China's cultural influence in Southeast Asia. You seem to be uh, making exactly the opposite argument, an interesting one. So it is not that uh, China did not have influence in the region. Uh, that would not be correct to say. But what I have said is that, yes, there was some kind of a Sinosphere which uh, mm. came up, uh, where mm. the use of Chinese language or where the use of Chinese aesthetics uh, was quite you know, dominant. Uh, so you had Japan, for example. Uh, Japan uh, language uh, was very much influenced by uh, China. Uh, or Japanese Buddhism, uh, Zen, for example, uh, again, very much influenced by, uh, you know, the whole concept of uh, Chan, which originally came from the Indian Dhyan. Uh, you know, this also influenced uh, uh, Japan. You can say the same thing about Korea, uh, very much influenced by uh, China. You could say the same about uh, Vietnam, because Vietnam was under Chinese occupation for uh, several centuries and therefore was very much impacted by uh, Chinese culture. But if you go beyond this so-called Sinosphere, uh, you do not see much impact of uh, Chinese culture in the rest of Southeast Asia. So there is much more influence by India because first you have Sanskrit, you have you know uh, the Hindu religion, uh, later on you have the Buddhist religion spread all over uh, this uh, region. Also, a long period of very flourishing trade between India and Southeast Asian countries, particularly, as I mentioned to you, the, the uh, spice trade, uh, the uh, popularity of Indian textiles throughout uh, Southeast Asia. And, you know, you just have to see the echoes and colors of India today in virtually every Southeast Asian country. So I'm not claiming something which is not there. You know, I've served in Indonesia, for example. I've served in uh, Myanmar. Right. And I can testify to the fact that uh, there is a lot of the imprint of India in these uh, countries. I'm not saying that, you know, they, uh, they borrowed everything from India. But I can certainly say that the cultural spark which was provided by India led to an efflorescence of culture in these uh, countries. Uh, they, they had their own genius, they had their own aesthetics, but you can see that there was a certain inspiration which came uh, from uh, India. So in that sense, I think it is not incorrect to say 
that while uh, Chinese influence, uh, cultural influence uh, was, or, and values uh, was uh, perhaps um, certainly transmitted to countries like Japan or to Korea or to Vietnam, those values do not necessarily find an echo uh, in much of uh, the rest of Asia. Right. Uh, Amata Saran, you know, uh, you also mentioned um, the issue of Tibet um, in, in the book. Um, you, you write that uh, neither the Mongols nor the Manchus consider Tibet as part of China, yet the contemporary Chinese narrative obfuscates this to claim that Tibet has always been part of China since ancient times. Uh, you also write that the Chinese have wanted the Dalai Lama to acknowledge this as a condition for resuming talks. So in this context, how do you sort of understand Tibet, its relation to China, and its significance for the India-China sort of boundary conflict or the larger conflict as it were? Yeah, so one is uh, the history part and the other is what the contemporary uh, you know, situation is. So the history part is that, you know, the argument that Tibet has always been a part of China, that is... Uh, contestable. Uh, this is what I have said. Uh, yes, uh, for example, the Mongols ruled over what may be called a multi-ethnic empire. So you not only had the Hans uh, as part of the empire, but there were also the Mongols who were part of the empire. There were several tribes, for example, on the periphery, which were also part of the empire. Tibet also was a part of that empire. So it was not as if the uh, the Mongols were uh, ruling over a Chinese empire which included all this. No. The Mongols ruled over an empire which included both Hans as well as other ethnic groups. So that's an important distinction uh, to make. Right. Exactly the right. same thing happened also under the Manchus. Uh, Manchus also had a multi-ethnic empire. It was not a Han empire. Now, uh, when, when uh, China was, for example, uh, towards the uh, end of the, um, of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, when the you know, struggle against the Manchus began, uh, the Manchus were actually attacked as being an alien you know, uh, ruler uh, of China. So a lot of the reform movement which was taking place was directed not against the West so much, it was directed against the Manchus because they were seen as an oppressive alien regime. Now, what has happened subsequently is that since during the Manchu time, the empire, the Manchu empire was actually the, the maximum that had been achieved in history uh, by any you know, empire, uh, you know, ruling over China, uh, China basically just, uh, you know, inherited that, <laughs> the, the most expansive phase of uh, history and said, this is, this is uh, what China is, you know, the, the right. uh, Manchus right. as an alien rule uh, was forgotten, you know, so there is mm -hmm. almost like a continuous history of China from the ancient time to the present. And these are all, you know, Chinese empires. Right. The right. fact that 50% of its history in China was also ruled by, you know, alien uh, races has been completely brushed, uh, brushed over. Uh, so India is uh, 
criticized that oh it is a slave country because it has for such a long period of its history it has been under alien rule but that is true of china <laughs> china as well uh, so um, there is there is a kind of a reinterpretation of history so what began as actually a very strong han you know reaction against alien rule uh, that alien rule has now become sanitized in a sense <laughs> it has been made part and parcel of this you know a uh, single stream of uh, history in china uh, so right, this is something right. which uh, i think we should question of course all countries tell stories about themselves <laughs> so it is not you know uh, something specific to china uh, but i think it is important for us if we wish to understand china and we, we wish to understand what lie behind the kind of perceptions that china has of india which is the prism through which it is looking at the rest of the world i think a familiarity with this history is very important hmm. right um, ambassador abhi you know there was an additional question that i wanted to your inputs on um, how does for example uh, tibet play a role in the india china sort of standoff yeah. uh, in modern times yeah so uh, as i said i mean uh, what i wanted to do was to uh contest the history that tibet has always been a part of china it has not always been a part of china i mean that is that is very clear from uh from history uh and you know when they go back to the thang dynasty and say uh, there was a kind of a you know a willing uh kind of acceptance of the uh, thang uh, you know uh, being the being the um you know uh, elder brother and and the tibetan king being the younger brother uh, that simply does not accord with history in fact the tibetan forces even sacked the then you know thang capital of changa and imposed uh, peace on the thang emperor uh, and were uh, receiving tribute from the uh, from the thang emperor uh, for quite some time as a result of their defeat uh so you cannot claim that that uh, is actually you know shows that uh, tibet was always a part of china it was not it had defeated uh, china at that particular point of time right. uh, and later on as i mentioned to you whether it is the mongols or the manchus uh, yes tibet was certainly part of their larger empire but it was not part of a chinese empire china too was part of that Right. multi-ethnic empire but it was not as if it was a chinese empire controlling uh, tibet or any other uh, territory now when china occupied uh, tibet in 1950 two things happened one was that uh, you know china and india for the first time had actually a, a boundary between them because so far there was no boundary between india and china except for in the western part you know uh the the uh, what is today's uh, xinjiang and 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 kashmir but that was a shorter but here this was a very vast area uh, where we had not confronted china in the past i mean there was hardly any confrontation between india and china in the past so for the first time in history we actually became neighbors of china secondly right. because of the fact that tibet had not in fact been a part of china for most of its history uh, it was no surprise that there was a considerable resistance in tibet uh, to an attempt by china to try and you know incorporate this into into the territory of china uh, so 
this was what led to the revolt in 1959. Now, India on the other side, even if it had no ambitions with regard to Tibet or did not want to contest uh, Chinese control over uh, uh, Tibet, from the Chinese perspective, India was seen as a spoil. And whatever may be happening on the border then began to be seen as an Indian attempt to try and contest Chinese control over Tibet because India itself had designs on Tibet. So before right. 1959, there were skirmishes taking place at the border. But those skirmishes were not very serious. They did not really impact on the overall fairly positive relationship between the two. This changed in 1959. Why did it change? Because there was a revolt in Tibet, which made the Chinese very, very nervous and anxious. The Dalai Lama, the spiritual and temporal head, uh, came and sought uh, you know, shelter in India. And India did extend that shelter to him. Uh, and that, from the Chinese perspective, was evidence that India was trying to somehow subvert uh, you know, Chinese control uh, over, over Tibet. They, this was certainly not the intention right. on the Indian side and India was not even capable of doing that. But I think we should put ourselves in their shoes and see how they were looking at the situation. Yeah. So the skirmishes which were taking place earlier exactly. at the border, after 1959 started being looked as from a kind of, as a, as a kind of a strategic threat. That these these clashes taking place at the border were on the Indian side designed to subvert Chinese control over Tibet. And that particular element of discord between the two countries has persisted ever since. Which is why I have also right. argued right. frequently that you know any settlement of the border issue between India and China will have to involve some understanding between the two countries on the issue of Tibet. Right. Uh, Ambassador, I know we have uh, spent a lot of time. Here is my last question to you. And that is uh, really about the implications of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. What implications do you think uh, it will have for global geopolitics? And what, some of, what are some of the lessons that... Uh, uh, China is drawing from from this conflict uh, because this is not just a conflict between Ukraine and Russia. This is also a conflict between um, uh, Russia and uh, the United States and the West. So, what implications? What lessons do you think China is drawing from this? Sure. So, firstly, I would say that there is a, a certain kind of revision which has to be made in both Chinese as well as Russian perceptions with regard to the so-called terminal decline of the U.S. and the West, you know, the sense that um, U.S. Right. is, even if it is still powerful, uh, it doesn't have the will to fight anymore. Uh, as far as Western Europe is concerned, it is fragmented. Uh, it has no ability to actually emerge as a kind of a cohesive force. What uh, Ukraine war has done is to really question some of those assumptions. Uh, particularly, I think in China, after the global financial and economic crisis of 2007-2008, uh, you know, uh, that uh, here is uh, the world's uh, most powerful economy, which is a beset with uh, economic uh, crisis. It is becoming weaker. 
Uh, you have uh, the same thing happening with uh, Western Europe as well. So they are economically enfeebled precisely at a time when China is growing from strength to strength. Uh, that is uh, the perception. So when Xi Jinping has talked about we are in the midst of changes unseen in a century. Okay. That is one part of the phrase. The second part of the phrase is unseen for a century and it is irreversible. The balance of power has changed in a manner that is irreversible. Meaning thereby that the West is in terminal decline. This is a judgment shared by China and Russia. And I think if you see that very clearly emerging in the December 4th uh 2021 you know joint declaration between china and uh, russia uh at uh, Beijing during the winter olympics you know that uh, really this is our moment it is now possible for us to be able to write the rules of the game of a new uh, international order so in that sense the uh miscalculation which Russia made with respect to Ukraine, that, you know, this will be over within a few days. We will be able to force the West to recognize that Russia is a key stakeholder as far as European security is concerned. That you cannot have a security architecture in Europe in which Russia does not have a decisive voice. And this is supported by uh, China. Because China is saying that as far as the Indo-Pacific is concerned, there cannot be similarly an architecture where China does not have a decisive voice. Hmm. Hmm. So the Xi Jinping's concept of, you know, a new kind of common security that he's right. talking So what has happened as a result of the Ukraine war? Not going the manner in which was anticipated by Russia and even by China. The fact that quite dramatically, Russia has been, in a sense, unplugged from the global economy, <laughs> you know, by take, being taken oh. off uh, the uh, SWIFT uh, payment system, uh, the very, you know, sweeping sanctions which have been put uh, on it. Uh, this has uh, come as a bit of a shock uh, to both uh, Russia, but also to uh, China, that the assumptions that they had made about the terminal decline of the U.S of fragmentation in the in amongst the Europeans. Uh, this somehow seems to have been reversed <laughs> as a result of the Ukraine war. So yeah, I'm yeah. sure that there must be a lot of recalculation taking place. Mm. So on balance, mm. if you ask me, how has it impacted so far? I would say it has put China somewhat on the defensive. From a phase where it was basically pushing and being very aggressive everywhere, it has, in a sense, uh, given it a bit of a setback. And the latest uh, demonstration of that is what has happened with Wang Yi's visit recently to the Pacific countries, where he wanted that the Pacific countries should sign on to a Chinese, <laughs> you know, uh, a, a kind of a, a kind of a blueprint uh, for the for the region for collective security as well, not just trade or economics. Right. This is about security. And uh, I think Bangi was uh, even angry, I think, uh, that uh, what 
seemed to have been agreed from beforehand actually did not come about. So I think you are seeing a certain pushback uh, to China. Of course, right. uh, Russia is in a rather <laughs> difficult situation. But I think uh, also my sense is that China uh, is also somewhat on the uh, defensive. And that, from the Indian point of view, is of course good news. Ambassador Saran, great insights, wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining the show. And may I also thank uh, our viewers for watching the show. Thank you, everyone, so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. All the best. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle, NSC with HJ or our Facebook page, National Security Conversations with Happy Mon Jacob.